Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone of the Department of History at Augustana College. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. The recent publication of a trove of letters from President Warren G. Harding to his next-door neighbor and mistress, Carrie Fulton Phillips, unlocked a set of rare historical treasures for late-night comics. The satirist John Oliver suggested, after reading aloud some of the steamy correspondence to his HBO audience, that Warren G. Harding was not only President of the United States, but our first great R&B lyricist. Yet, aside from revealing that not only did this generation not invent sex, we're also not the first ones to enjoy it, what does this recent micro-event reveal to us of the way we think about the past? The New York Times, in its essay meditating on the significance of the Harding Letters publication, was quick to remind its readers that Harding's administration is, quote, widely regarded as visionless, ineffectual, and corrupt. He slashed immigration quotas, appointed his cronies, one of whom, his Secretary of the Interior, accepted bribes from oil companies in what became known as the Teapot Dome Scandal, and brought an end to the famously reform-minded eras of Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson. Perhaps the best that can be said about Harding is that he seems to have been conscious of his defects. The curious case of Warren Harding's love letters are a kind of bookend, along with the recent broadcast of a documentary of the Roosevelt family by Ken Burns that can only be called hagiographic. In between these two outlying bookends is the strange history of presidential history. When do we start to write presidents? What are the criteria used to write them? Why do we bother? Does that tell us more about the presidents or about us? And is presidential to historian as UFO is to scientists? With me to discuss this and other questions is Michael J. Conley. He is a professor of history at Purdue University North Central and an expert on 19th century political culture. The author of Capitalism, Politics, and Railroads in Jacksonian New England. He is the author of numerous articles, including some that tend to focus on those who might be charitably described as overlooked politicians, if not rudely abused politicians. He is also one of the only people I know of, other than the eminent historian of the early 20th century, Robert Hugh Farrell, who has actually visited the Harding Mausoleum in Marion, Ohio. Michael Conley, does Warren Harding deserve all the opprobrium that we heap upon him? Well, that's a softball question. It is. Uh, for me, I would say no. I mean, Harding's reputation has suffered really since uh, shortly after his death, when much of the scandals, like you mentioned, Teapot Dome, came to light. But he was, as Robert Farrell brought up, he was very much the victim of progressive politicians who were quite favorable to Teddy Roosevelt and to, and to Woodrow Wilson and saw in Harding the rejection of everything uh, that came directly before him. And so his reputation suffered for, for a good many years. It's only been really the last, say, 15, maybe 20 years that his reputation has improved. And he's certainly gone from being considered widely a failure to now being a mediocrity. And for Harding, that's really an improvement. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting that um, 
Woodrow Wilson is cited as a uh, reformer, uh, given that one of his reforms was to resegregate or to segregate the uh, federal civil service. Um, uh, something that uh, did Hard- Harding did not undo that, did he? Yeah, I don't know if he. Uh, I don't off the top of my head know if he actually undid it, but you're certainly right that Woodrow Wilson was a retrograde figure, uh, in my opinion, in American history. Yeah, he segregated not only the White House, he. As far as I know, he also segregated the federal government, mm-hmm. you know, getting rid of many um, black Republican clerks, replacing them with loyal white Democratic clerks. Um, and, of course, he also uh, was good friends with D.W. Griffith. Yeah. And The, the uh, director the birth, of Birth of the Nation. Birth of the Nation was screened at the White House in, what was it, 1915? Yeah. Something like yeah, that. Yeah, right. Uh, it, and Harding, the other thing Harding has enough credit for, of course, he, in October 1921, he went to Alabama gave uh, a civil rights speech before about 20,000 people, a mixed-race audience, arguing for black civil rights. And he rarely gets any credit for that. Mm-hmm. Um, nevertheless, the reputation of Warren G. Harding is that of a mediocrity. Um, and in that category, he is joined by numerous other presidents. Uh, when did we get interested in so assessing the presidents? Um, you when know, did I get interested? Well, <laughs> we'll get to that later. But... Um, when do you think, first of all, is this something historians do or reporters do? Um, it, when did we first start rating presidents? It's I haven't found a good answer to that just in my canonical you know, investigation. I think, I don't know if I have a really concrete answer for that, but certainly the most prominent rater of, of presidents was Arthur B. Schlesinger. And I believe his first rating of presidents was in, I'm going to say, 1948. Uh-huh. And the good question is, you know, why did he begin then? Why did he become interested in rating presidents and the scale of greatness? Which, of course, was notoriously inexact. I mean, how exactly do you define greatness? Right. It depends who you talk to. Yeah. But, you know, he was a great admirer of FDR, and I think you also have to keep in mind that this is the very beginning of the Cold War, and the presidency is having a good deal more importance with the rise of the national security state. And I think this whole notion of presidential greatness began to take on a degree of importance to people like Schlesinger and people after him, mm-hmm. as the presidency itself became, in many ways, the preeminent branch of of the government, and people became quite obsessed with this notion of greatness. Yeah, that that seems uh, that seems reasonable to me. Um, but what's what's curious is then we have, um, as it were, projected backwards that vision of the presidency, um, all the way back to even into my period of interest, uh, say. <laughs> pre, <laughs> well, my period of interest stops around 1800, so there aren't that many. Hist- uh, I'm only interested about yeah. It's all journalism after that. So uh, only two presidents particularly interest me. But we do we do project that backward all the way to John Adams, and we might find George Washington not sufficiently, not really chief executive material. Right. Yeah, I mean it's certainly true. We. I mean, that's probably inevitable that you're going to do that. If you're going to get in the business of rating presidential greatness, you you can't just start from 1948. Um, but you, you do have to take. I mean, I think you do have to take the presidents on their own terms. You have to do. You have to consider the context, the pressures they were facing, the political culture of the time, the nature of the presidency at the time, and factoring in um, notions of, of greatness. You can't certainly rate, you know, Dwight D. Eisenhower and and Andrew Jackson on the same scale when the 1830s were remarkably different from the 1950s. Right. 
uh, yet we we persist in it and it, it we, se- do. we seem it seems to be important to us because uh, it, I, I wonder Michael what do you, what do you think of the idea that in many ways the rating of presidents began at more or less well, slightly after but by um, you know historical terms almost simultaneously with the relentless periodization of history uh, I mean in, in a sort yes. of modern sense it begins when we start talking about the roaring 20s and the and so on and so on what do, you, what do you think of that? I mean, the presidency is now related to other periods of American life. Well, I think that's true, because I think most people um, understand history through um, through presidencies. I mean, th- those are our reference points for most people um, in history. We talk about the Jeffersonian era. We talk about the Jacksonian era, the era of Roosevelt, the era of, of Eisenhower, the era of Reagan, or something like that. You know, the, that particularly for non-academic historians, when you start mentioning those names and dropping those names, mm-hmm. that's a way for people to plug in. They're, they're, um, and that's a, that's a sort of inevitable periodization of history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're, la- they're landmarks for our uh, there are. comprehension of the past. Right, I think, I think that that's true. I th- and particularly for non-academic historians who don't, you know, who don't spend every moment of the day thinking about this type of thing. But when you mention Andrew Jackson, you know, mm-hmm. they may plug into a certain time period. I mean, they, it might bring a certain time period into their head. Yeah. And when you say, you know, the, the age of Reagan, okay, you click right in, you begin yeah. to understand, um, you know, the era that you're talking about by invoking that name. It's very strange. It's as if social history never happened when we do that. Uh, it's as if the in all, everything that's happened in uh, the study of history, um, American history, world history, European history, um, the the field has moved so dramatically away from that sort of conception of understanding history. And yet um, that sort of way of thinking about the past remains um, unquestioned uh, in popular history. I'm not saying that, well, I mean, we could say it's a bad thing, but I'm, it's, I think it is a fact that that is, that is, is the case. It probably is true. I mean, uh, certainly social history and cultural history have made enormous inroads since the 1960s, but it's an interesting question whether it actually affected our our understanding or periodization of mm-hmm. uh, of American history. I mean, what strikes me in in passing and trying to draw uh, draw parallels is that, in many ways, the way that Americans consider history through the presidential periodization is not that much different than you hear many British historians <laughs> talking about the age of Victoria, yeah, exactly, or uh, you know Regency England or yeah. Edwardian England, and yet we have our parallel to that, obviously, with the Republican tent saying things like the age of Lincoln, the age of Roosevelt, the age of Reagan. Right, right. That's that's. I, I was thinking that. It's like speaking, ah, yes, during the last emperor, we, uh, during that Which time. Which may also bring us back to the changing nature of the presidency after World War II. I mean, how many yeah. people have, I'm certainly not the first president to say it, but we, we almost regard our presidents as being a type of royalty. Sure. Yeah. And, I, our, and our understanding of them is not, now starting to mirror, uh, uh, to mirror periodization of British royalty itself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but so far, we only have an. Eight, there's only be an eight-year period at most um, in which we. True. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, that, it, well, yes and no. I mean, <laughs> you could say Jacksonian era began long before Jackson became president. Yes. And he died in 1845. Some people will say that it didn't end until 1860. Yeah. And the um, what, what's what's I, I was thinking in terms of that social history remark. We we because the presidents are forgettable between Lincoln and Roosevelt, at least to, to most of us, not to you, I know. Um, we tend to just mash that all together as relatively boring. Uh, yeah. Although, it, you know, I'm saying this as an early American historian, um, 1870, 1900s, 
some of the most consequential decades in the life of the of, of the country. I mean, it, it's when that things change uh, in almost unrecognized to an, un, into an unrecognizable society from 1860 to 1900. Um, yeah, but you know, it just sort of the Gilded Age. You know, we don't thing. we don't talk about. Well, the presidency, of course, was also quite weak at that point. Congress was much yes. more powerful. We don't yes. talk about, you know, the Hayes era in American history. There's no such thing. <laughs> right. the, People would know what we were talking we about. We don't even um, talk about the Cleveland era, even though arguably— You could. Yeah, you could. Yeah, I know you could. I know you would. Too, but you, you could. Would. He was there for a long time. Yeah, he was. He was, uh, you know, 12 years on and off, as it were. Yeah. Um, one uh, related to this is the, um, I think, the— which concept of the presidency are we playing back? Let's speak a little bit more of that. You, you, you made the Cold War presidency, the national security presidency. Right. What do you mean by that? Could you define that term? What do I mean by Cold War president? Yeah, yeah. Well, I would say that you know the, the nature of and how we understand the presidency changed after World War II with the, with the arrival of the Cold War and the, and the arrival of the national security state. You know, you have now uh, an entirely different infrastructure of national defense with a, a DOD swallowing up war and navy, and you have the arrival of the CIA replacing the OSS, and you have, you know, expansion of of um, the national security apparatus uh, facing down the Soviet Union. And it is because this is seen increasingly over time as because, uh, really being a crisis period, international crisis period, um, decision-making needs to be done rather quickly on national security issues, and this gives rise to, I think, the importance of the presidency uh, in this era. Mm -hmm. Well, at least the problems, obviously. Mm -hmm. Congress is going to try to take power back at certain times, looking at abuses of the presidency, be that at the time of Vietnam, Gulf of Tonkin, or something like that, mm -hmm. or being at Watergate and the, and the, push, uh, the pullback there by Congress. Um, but there's no doubt that the presidency is a much more powerful instrument today than it was 70 years ago. And the beginning of that changing nature of the presidency has everything to do with, with the arrival of the Cold War. Yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, there, there is the sort of National Security Council apparatus that's that's put up with, uh, what, 1947? Right. Um, but and it never left us. Cold no. War has been over for, what, 20 years, 25 right. years, and it's still... That apparatus has has remained, and now it's become even more intense after nine eleven with homeland security and things sure. like that. But it's you know the roots of that go back uh, long before into to the late nineteen forties. But it's also striking to me, um, uh, and this is part of the overall growth of the federal government. But I mean, Eisenhower did not only um, expand the National Security Council. I mean, it, it it fit in with his sort of managerial way of of, of handling such things. But he also expanded the the Bureau of the Budget, the Office of Management Budget. It wasn't right. just the National Security um, apparatus that was expanded. Um, it's quite extraordinary to look at the size of the White House staff, say, and even under FDR. I mean, FDR's death uh, versus when Eisenhower left the um, the Oval Office. Yeah, it certainly starts to expand. I mean, you have jobs that would have been foreign uh, to to people in Washington 100 years ago, things like chief of staff, mm -hmm. press yeah. secretary. yeah. Advisor to this, advisor to that, um, it just <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't, it would have been completely foreign. I mean, to come back to Harding, I think Harding probably had a staff less than 10 people in the 1920s. I mean, it was pretty small. Yeah. He had yeah. one private secretary. That was it. Yeah. Har I mean, uh, you go back to the 19th century, you know, famously, Grover Cleveland answered the phone at the White House. He answered the door. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's amazing uh, the amount of uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, handled a massive war. 
yeah. uh, with three secretaries and uh, two, certainly two uh, and one floating in and out uh, depending uh, at various times, but at most three. And the amount of correspondence he dealt with is really extraordinary, is really uh, extraordinary, even by email standards. Yeah, he had two secretaries, Nicolay and Hay. Right, and then stop. They handle everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, related uh, to this, let's um, let's speak about the role of memory and history. Um, how do you see that playing into the um, the way that we perceive presidents? This is a very memory studies now becoming very popular for historians to play around with. Um, how does this play into our interpretation of, of presidents? Well, yeah, it's the first memories of the first, the first script in many ways of presidential history. I mean, um, if you look at, I mean, you can use Abraham Lincoln just to link up uh, yeah, as absolutely. a first example of that. After he was killed in 1865, uh, you know, most Americans have a memory of him for the next 40 years. Mm-hmm. You know, they were alive. Uh, at the time of his presidency, through the Civil War, at the time of his assassination, and had a major role in the first script on how he was regarded by history, which was extremely positive. Mm-hmm. Well, at least amongst, I should say. Again? <clears throat> I, I mean, I would say I, one of the things that we tend to elide in discussing that is that he was extremely uh, unpopular with, uh, say, a third of all whites in the United States. Right. I mean, and bitterly so. I mean, you know, vociferously so. I would make the argument that his reputation actually declined, uh, went to a lower point uh, among most people in, in the first half of the 20th century, mm-hmm. in the time of progressivism, in the, in the, in the aftermath of World War I, when you have the whole needless war school beginning to arrive on the scene of, of Civil War historiography. Mm-hmm. Lincoln's reputation isn't anywhere near as high as it was in the, in the late 19th century. Mm-hmm. When now people, particularly after World War One, are looking at war as not being the answer, yeah, as uh, causing more problems than it's ever solving. Yeah. It's even if you take the success of Gone with the Wind, um, both, right? In both North and South, um, we see the really um, <laughs> pernicious victory of the lost cause historians uh, by the 1930s, 1940s, in a really, a a really extraordinary way. Yeah, it, it took a while, but it was certainly it was certainly there. Yeah. Um, yeah. One of the problems with memory, of course, is that we have uh, a lot of people believe, um, I'm obviously skeptical of this, but people believe that if you have a memory of an event, you have a better appreciation of the history of that event. Mm-hmm. So in other words, Civil War histories that were written by people who witnessed an event are better than, if you will, give a better appreciation of it. And, are better accounts of a certain event than people who are writing 100 years later. Yeah, well, we know that's not always true. <laughs> Certainly not true. I mean, yeah. if you look at the, the again, Civil War historiography, you look at the, the first draft of various battles that are written by people who are actually there, and you compare it to the, the, dra- uh, the people who are writing about 100, 150 years later, yeah. vastly better because they have some critical distance, number one, but yeah. they're also able to bring in the accounts of many, many more people um, this is one of the problems I have with histories of the 1960s. Mm-hmm. You know, the first drafts are always people, well, you know, you wouldn't understand it because you weren't there. Yeah. Well, that's true. I, I wasn't there, but I also wasn't at the, at the American Revolution. Yeah. I think that I can have a pretty good understanding of that, despite not actually having witnessed it firsthand. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, I think it's Alan Gweltzow in his uh, new History of Gettysburg um, right. points out the uh, you can find even the same person giving testimony and how it alters um, based upon the histories of Gettysburg that they've read. 
so they'll recall things that they couldn't possibly have seen um, right, in, right. The, in the wheat field that were happening up on, say, Culp's Hill. But they'll include it later as part of their personal recollections, or I heard it from a fellow. Now, they, they, they probably just they read it almost certainly in a, in, a, in a subsequent history or in a newspaper article. Yeah, memory begins to play tricks. Yeah, it does. Um, and, and this relates then to the presidency... Um, because we see Eisenhower as a grandfatherly figure, and that's it. Or, or... Well, yeah, I mean, you can you can apply that that notion of memory to to well, you could take more recent presidents if you like. I mean, okay. To to many of them, Eisenhower being one, right? You know, the, yes, the grandfather figure who seemed to just preside over the 1950s, as opposed to directly governing, who was more interested in golfing. Mm-hmm. Than anything else, and you know that draft of history has totally changed in the past 40 years. Yeah. Nope. Right, we have his diaries, his papers. Papers have opened up. We now realize that he was a much more involved and activist uh, figure in the 1950s. A yeah. Much more activist figure in his own presidency, and of course, his reputation has improved. Kennedy is another good example of this too. How People so? with searing memories of the assassination and Camelot and the like. Mm-hmm. You know, baby boomers. When that begins to fade away, it'd be really fascinating to see what's going to happen to Kennedy's reputation. It can only go down. Yeah, well, I, go up. I picked up. Uh, Manchester's death of a president um, at the, for the, during the anniversary of right. uh, the Kennedy assassination, and it was really shocking to me. Uh, that was written in the white heat of the moment, right? And uh, so much of it is just um, what's we know now. It's factually untrue. Uh, leaving aside the interpretations, just the fact the facts are not in the right. <laughs> they're either not correct or they're in the wrong arrangement. Right. It- yeah, one of the things that I've I've been interested in, I've mentioned it elsewhere, is that I'm be, I'll be really fascinated to see how going forward the next twenty years, you could use the Kennedy example if you want, mm-hmm. about how Generation X historians and millennial historians are going to remember and write about those periods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it will, uh, compare it up to boomers, it's going to be really, I think, dramatically different. Yeah, yeah, there's going to be some really ugly sessions at the AHA over the next twenty years. Eh? Hope I'm, yeah, hope I'm around. You can, see it. You, can, you can begin to see it already. Some, yeah. some histories of the Vietnam War aren't, I mean, impossible to believe they could have been written 20 years ago. Well, they couldn't have been written 20 years ago. It's just, it's just remarkable to read yeah. them coming out. You're going to get the same thing coming about, to stick with the presidency thing, about Kennedy, about Johnson, about Nixon, about Reagan. So when memory passes and you begin to have another generation considering these things, it, the interpretation is going to change. One thing that you mentioned in, in terms of Eisenhower is we now have his, his massive papers. Right. Uh, um, <laughs> it relates to the Harding letters in some way. It relates to these uh, this endless endless volumes of uh, Reagan uh, papers that Kieran Skinner and the um, Andersons, I think, have been uh, right. publishing about Reagan. All these things. Pa- historians are impressed by paper. Why? Explain that to those who don't know why we're so, we have such a paper fetish. Well, yeah. I mean, all historians love a paper trail. There's no question about it. And uh, when the paper trail is is of a more personal nature, you want to take the Reagan example, the, the famous yellow legal pads. Mm-hmm. Where, where were those? Where were the Martin Anderson was the one who I know he's dug those up. Yeah, I believe they're in the Reagan papers out in out in California now. But I mean, he would sit down constantly and be writing on these yellow legal pads, his speeches and his ideas, and they came to him. And I mean, this this is a much more personal. Um, a personal recollection. This isn't a recollection of the chief of staff or something like that. Mm-hmm. And that type of that type of uh, introspective personal source on you know, getting inside of Reagan's mind mm-hmm. in, in these years of the seventies and eighties. I mean, it's just a it's just a precious thing. Right, and it's difficult for 
uh, well, not for our generation, but for those uh, slightly older who believe that Reagan didn't have a mind um, to see a legal yellow uh, yellow legal pad right. uh, um, is uh, is a difficult thing. It's uh, it, it threatens. Um, it, it's there's always a crisis of faith involved. I think in in, in I don't have this problem. I'm an early American historian, but for right. someone who's doing current events, essentially. Um, to change your opinion based on your memory, it's it's an it's an interesting moment of uh, intellectual integrity. It seems to me. Yeah, it makes me wonder about um, if historians love paper trails so much. I mean, what is you know now we're in the midst of this um, anyway, an anti-paper movement where you have texting as a, yeah. as a major form of communication. Well, we'll be able to get that from the NSA. It'll be all right. Yeah, I mean, what what sort of <laughs> what sort of paper trail are going to be left? the future to look at uh, to look at it's going to be quite different yeah let's think of some other examples of, of presence the, the the shift in memory and and history we've got eisenhower we've got increasingly reagan we've, yeah i we've mean got the those potential are all, for kennedy those are all post uh, world war ii um uh post world war ii examples if you go further back uh, it's sort of interesting to think of we should mention truman though because that was a huge shift truman, of course when truman left office in 53 his reputation was mud yeah I mean, there were scandals around him um, as well, and I mean, he was not a popular figure. And Nor in the again, Democratic with Party. the progress of the Cold War, that began to change his reputation for the better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people I, began to see him as a cold warrior, as tough against the Soviets, and 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 so on. And his reputation has has vastly improved. Yeah, it was uh, it was a bipartisan movement too, because he came out Absolutely. in '56. He was uh, tried at the convention, tried to. Unhorse uh, Stevenson, didn't he? I think he did. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah, and don't discount a book like David McCullough's bio of having a role in that as well. That was a very popular book. No, I yeah, I think with it, a lot of Americans, and that did wonders for Truman's reputation. I think it was on the rise before then, anyway. But that did yeah. wonders to sort of seal it. There, there's nothing like a David McCullough book to change a reputation. Look at jo- John Adams. will mail that. We'll write an endorsement of that fact. Uh, yeah. Any, no question. Any day of the week. Yeah. Yep. Yep, no, no question. And that would be, another, and I would that would be another reputation which changed dramatically. Um, we could argue about. Um, I mean, in, in each case, it's it's interesting. In in, in I, I've never read Truman. I have looked. I have read through Adams, and in that case, I think McCullough changed Adams' reputation by making this cranky, querulous, slightly paranoid um, statesman into right. a cranky. Lovable, querulous, slightly paranoid next door neighbor, and that made all the difference. Who also did do some statesmanlike stuff and shaped America, but it was that by bringing out that per, the the personal John Adams that um, that sold Americans that uh, John Adams was not um, the slightly insane man that Ben Franklin thought he was. It didn't help his, the reputation of his presidency, which still isn't really well regarded, but it certainly did improve his reputation as a person. And of course, yeah. his letters with Jefferson also did wonders for that, too. Well, I mean, McCullough did focus on, um, he tried to, you know, he he, he uh, criticized him for the Alien Sedition Acts, as, as one does, and uh, but then also uh, it made them a, a case for him being a peace president. Right. And one who lost the second term, his second term because of his emphasis on peace, which is pretty much the way John saw himself too. So, yeah, can't I ask think if you better look, than that, if, if, you, you, if you were to poll historians today and ask them, I mean, this is going to fall back on the whole notions of greatness and ranking a president. Yeah, which we obviously have problems with. <laughs> it's 
you would find a, you know, Adams would have a tough time breaking out of the middle. Yeah. What's the riddle of Nixon's tapes when it comes to um, legacy and memory and all the rest of that stuff? You've referred of the to Nixon before. tapes? Yeah, the riddle of the Nixon tapes. You've referred to this before in, the, in our pre-podcast. Well, the Nixon tapes are, <laughs> yeah, they're the, they're the part of the end of the rainbow for many historians. I mean, <laughs> here you have, I mean, don't we wish that we had more uh, Roosevelt tapes? There are such things as Roosevelt tapes, yeah. by the way. Yeah, there are. Um, a lot of them online. You can listen to them. They're really interesting to hear the inside the White House in 1940. You know, they're really quite stunning. But, I mean, they're the, the, the ultimate source because we get to hear um, Nixon in private moments, you know, talking in a very uh, sometimes blunt, oftentimes blunt way about international politics, about uh, about other people in the country, about his own, uh, his own uh, staff and what have you. And Therein also lies the problem. They're extremely alluring. Mm -hmm. And because of their uniqueness, we put undue importance on them as being the most important source when it comes to understanding Nixon. Right. It, it's, we're like moths to a, a candle. With it's the shiny object in the room, yeah. and we privilege that over the enormous amount of papers that are at the Nixon library. Yeah. Um, that people can look through. But, I mean, you look at the tapes, and everybody is immediately immediately drawn to those, and it gives you... I tend to be a little bit more favorable to Nixon personally anyway, yeah, yeah. but um, it gives you, I think, a slightly slanted view of the man because you're only looking at... You're only leaning heavily on one particular source in order to come to an understanding of him. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that, that's what I mean, but it's like a riddle in that sense. Um, it's, it's, an in, it's an incomplete thing to get your, to get your mind around. Yeah, and certainly we would certainly tell even our undergraduates, no, hang on, don't use that one source. You have to go and use other types of sources. Right. But, but. Right. Yeah. I mean, but, you don't discount the, the tapes. I mean, they, they are really interesting to listen to him. You could lose a lot of hours just sitting here listening to him talk to Kissinger about the world. Well, you, well, you can, but I It's, I a, it's a stunning uh, source, but I think that therein also, also lies its, it's it's a great problem. It would be, I mean, to use the Eisenhower example, that would mean it would be like looking at Eisenhower's diary, and because it says diary, you just discount everything else in order to come to an understanding. Well, we wouldn't do that. No, we wouldn't do that because we would we would understand that relying solely on a diary would give us a slanted view of the man. The risk with the tapes is that you do the same thing with Nixon. Mm -hmm. What's the role of memoirs in shaping the um, the post presidency? Uh, it's been highly unsuccessful. I think lately, um, I can't think of any post World War II president who's really moved the needle with a memoir. Um, but I would argue that Nixon's memoir did. Okay, it began to. I mean, it certainly wasn't complete. We shouldn't think of moving the needle as being a complete process. But right. there's no question. I would say that his memoir began a 20-year-long rehabilitation project, and that yeah. was the first step. Yeah. Uh, well, that was, if for my money, that is easily the most successful of the memoirs. Yeah, that's true, and it is. Uh, that's I had. Yeah, it's obviously not my period. I completely forgot that. We should get to. We'll have to get to rehabilitation projects. I'm just struck by the incidence of say 19th century memoirs. Yeah. Um. um other. You're certainly right that other memoirs have been much less successful. Um, Previous to that, I mean, I'm running through my head real fast. You know, 
one of the earliest, I think it may be the first presidential memoir, though Van Buren might have been might have been there as well, but the the earliest real presidential memoir was Buchanan's. Hmm. Uh, and that came out in 65, 66, I believe. And of course, he left office in 61, 1861. Yeah. A lot had happened by that time. I mean, of course. I mean, the war is already over. And yeah. this, this was a case, it was a, an attempt by him to justify his yeah. his administration. Um, and what's unusual about that memoir is that it's written entirely in the third person. Oh, my goodness. Right. Which is interesting. He tried to create some sort of critical distance. Mm-hmm. Uh, between him, himself and himself in writing it. Did he, um, and did he publish it under his own name, or did he just publish yes. it without a, without a name on it? Just the... Yeah, no, it's published by him. Okay. Yeah, his name is on it, but huh. he he wrote it, you know, Buchanan did this, Buchanan did that. Huh. He, read, he had read too much Caesar, construed too much Caesar as a, as a young schoolboy. Yeah, parent. that, you know, that, just speaking of moving the needle, the Buchanan book did not move the needle. No. Um, and it would have been, he could have been writing a Shakespeare, and it would have been difficult to move the needle for him in that atmosphere. I mean, yeah. he's, right, he's, he's writing right after the Civil War, right after the assassination of Lincoln. Yeah. It would have been Herculean for him to be able to to move the needle on his presidency. There's nothing he could have written could have done that. Mm-hmm. You have to wait for a, for a future historian to do mm-hmm. that. And then there's Grant's memoir. Well, certainly Grant. You know, you know, Grant's reputation was fairly good, yeah. even though his presidency was riddled with corruption and there were some certainly a lot of problems in the early Reconstruction period there. He was still a, a war hero. Yeah. Um, and it was all bankrolled, set up by Mark Twain, of course. Yes. Uh, and that's still in publication today. Goodness, you can get a Penguin paperback of Grant's, uh, of Grant's uh, memoir. That was very successful. I don't think it really moved the needle because it didn't no. need to be moved. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I think people have the idea that Grant's memoir did change perceptions of Grant. But as you say, yeah. I mean, he was, uh, <laughs> he came very close to uh, running for president in 1880 or being nominated for president in 1880. Absolutely. Uh, and, wanted him. Yeah, and uh, it, he, was, uh, he was an international celebrity on his trip around the world. Uh, That's right. And he was still a great attraction at all the various... Uh, Banquets and um, uh, speechifyings that uh, enliven the lives of the of the, the people of the Gilded Age, um, right. and I and it, we. The idea would be that it was Grant apart from his presidency, but people were very well aware of what had happened in his presidency, and they still gave him their un, you know, a, a great deal outpourings of love and affection. Yeah, there's also a question of motivation. Yeah, you know, Buchanan, Nixon. Uh, Clinton, people like that, are writing their memoirs to begin to shape their historical reputation. Mm-hmm. It seems to me Grant was doing it because he wanted the money. Yeah, yeah. yeah Buchanan didn't think he, he didn't need the money, and he wasn't doing it because he was hoping to get rich. Yeah. What Grant Van, was dying and wanted to leave something for his kids. Right. What did Van Buren do it for? Van Buren wrote, because he died in 62, he, um, he wrote a, a, essentially a a bio, but it was essentially an account of his years in politics. You know, talking about various. We talked about Buchanan in the book. He hated Buchanan, um, but he, he sort of looked over antebellum politics and commented on a, on a wider scope than people like Buchanan did, who just focused fairly narrowly on his years of the presidency. Mm-hmm. But he's really the first one to do that. He and Buchanan. I'm trying to think. I don't. Nobody else really did that. Mm-hmm wanted to leave anything behind it's a good question of you know why didn't they did they find it yeah. to be unbecoming 
right? I mean, um, well, unnecessary. You know, why didn't Roosevelt? I mean, T. R. wrote an autobiography. I mean, it's pretty boring. Um, yeah, it's and uh, you would think that he'd had a lot of legacy to argue over and 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 defend and against. Um, you know, the people to his right and, and actually and those to his left as well. You know, sort of unique place to stake out, but he doesn't do it. I mean, it's it's not the book that you would expect it it to be. No, no, not at all. I'm trying to think. Um... Well, anyway, the, the this gets to the shaping of the legacy question. And um, that certainly has been a, uh, how shall we say, it has been the habitual um, practice of, uh, presence uh, since the Second World War to engage in a shaping of their legacy. It's a very, very strange activity. Um, and it's led to one of the strangest uh, political cultural institutions in uh, American life, which is the Presidential Library. Right. Uh, how does that all fit together? That's a fairly recent phenomenon, too. Um, the real interest in presidential libraries. As the power of the presidency and the paper trail begins to expand, they begin to you begin to have a real interest in in creating uh, permanent homes for papers and essentially museums to testify to this this person's greatness after they've left. Mm. Um, I've never been to it, but Rutherford B. Hayes has a presidential library. Get out of town! Really? In Ohio. So um, even pe- pe- even long dead presidents now yes. have to have presidential libraries. It's like a it's a ex post facto kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, certainly uh, Franklin Roosevelt obviously has one, yeah. and even Herbert Hoover has one. Yeah, but that, yeah. Because Hoover had a very distinguished post-presidential and pre-presidential career. Yeah. So it's it's more of a Hoover institution as opposed to just a Hoover presidential <laughs> right. library. There's yeah. a lot of other things there. Yeah. But, you know, it tells you something about the way that they understand the presidency. Cool mm-hmm. that you never had <laughs> yeah. a presidential library. Burn um, a lot and of I don't papers, think there's too, ever right? going to be one, even though he has great admirers. Right. It would also run contrary to his vision of the presidency. Yeah. Wouldn't yeah. it be slightly ironic to have a Coolidge library? It, it would be uh, like um, jumbo shrimp. It, it would. Yeah, be, it would right. be a great oxymoron. Just, it just wouldn't seem to fit. No. Well, on the yeah. other hand, a Woodrow Wilson library would occupy twenty twenty city blocks. <laughs> I mean, I can see it. <laughs> Being in a, you know a center of great attention, but well, it's the Woodrow Wilson Coolidge. Institute. I think it's supposed to fulfill that function, right? And right. What, what a wonderful organization it is. Yeah, right. Um, so, yeah. And, but it is a very much a recent phenomenon that tells you something about the expanding power and vision of the presidency. That this yeah. is it's it's unthinkable that a modern president wouldn't have one unless they were a, a, they considered themselves to be totally insignificant and a flunky. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean. I can just I'm 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 running off my vision of the Coolidge Library banquets at the Coolidge Library. Everyone gets a can of Moxie. Yeah, I mean, it. Everybody, that's, that's it. Yeah, there's a lot of great comedy there. I yeah, think but, there's a lot of good comedy there. I mean, Gerald Ford was there for two and a half years. He has this big library in Lansing. Coolidge was there for what seven? He has as a farm up in the middle of nowhere, Vermont. Right, exactly. And I think he gave his papers to some local. I forget what library in Northampton. I think, if I recall correctly, um, I don't know why I know that. But there's a lot of things that. I, yeah, um, that's another issue, of course, presidential papers. Yeah. And, you know, when are they open and are they destroyed? You know, some pre- people went and some presidents culled through them and destroyed yes. and, you know, potentially incriminating or stuff they just didn't want the public to look at before they donated them. Right. Which obviously Warren Harding did, but not his mistress. 
There's nothing a misnomer with that. Everybody always assumed that Harding's papers, the great story that Francis Russell was completely unreliable, but Francis Russell puts in his book that, that after Harding died, his wife went down to the basement, and essentially he and she and George Christian, the personal secretary, went and burned everything in sight, mm-hmm. and that there was literally nothing left. And of course, that's not true. The Ohio Historical Society has an enormous trove of Harding papers really? that escaped um, the notice of, of Florence Harding. Or most subsequent historians, it must be said. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, if people looked at it, I mean, they could find them there. There's, there's a, a very large size White House collection there of of, uh, of Harding papers. Arthur burned all of his papers. Yeah, really? We have nothing, virtually nothing on, well, on Arthur. Well, the shady character from New York City, what do you expect? Well, that's the assumption, that he yeah. burned it all because all this, uh, his... Uh, his time as collector yeah. in the uh, custom house. Well, that in was New York. I, God knows that was that that was the practice uh, of, yeah. uh, that you you destroy personal papers. Uh, that's, that's right. They they won't exist. We have what is it six letters between Martha and George Washington. Uh, one of the most important letters that he that Washington ever wrote to Martha after he had been uh, nominated uh, and approved as commander of the Continental Army um, survives because it fell behind a drawer. In a right. in a dresser, uh, it's crazy, crazy. But she burned all the rest. Katie Green burned all the letters that um, Nathaniel um, that she wrote to Nathaniel. I mean, and and probably went through the other, probably got rid of the the sex letters too. I mean, quite frankly, um, right? You know, so. To me, oh, it's well. like a post Nixon legacy. Yeah, it's, uh, we ch- are changing understanding of presidential papers as being the public's right. Sacrosanct. I mean, that essentially the public has the right and ownership to them. Yeah. Matter how personal they are, yeah. as opposed to earlier periods when they were mine hands off. Right, and which means that, of course, the papers become increasingly less personal and less informative. Pretty much, because you, yeah. you're always afraid that there's going to be wandering eyes 50 years from now. Right, yeah. Um, so we've discussed papers, we've discussed memory, we've discussed the ways of attempting to control uh, the legacy by controlling access. To, well, we could go on for a while about controlling access to papers. Um, that's a, almost a topic to, for a separate uh, program. Um, why do we bother? Should we bother with presidential history? I mean, is there such a thing as presidential history? I recognize political history, but when I see people described as presidential historians, I, I wonder how can there be such a thing? Well, of course, I would argue yes, that there is such a thing. And one of the reasons I would argue yes is because um, it's where the public is. And I think that's important for history going forward as a discipline to understand that where the public is and to reach out to them as much as possible. Particularly in an environment today where so many people look at colleges um, as falling down on their mission. They want many people out there today want to turn college and universities into vocational schools. Um, I I didn't say that. They they begin to doubt the, the the. usefulness and purposes of teaching history beyond gen ed and in a college and yeah. university. And I think it's important for historians to understand that um, the public likes history. Yeah. The public buys lots of history books. Doris yeah. Kears Goodwin is doing very well with her book on Teddy Roosevelt and William Howard Taft. Really? People are buying it. People are reading it. And so the public understands history as we began through the history of the presidency. Yeah. And we can complain about that. We could say, well, you shouldn't do that. You know, we could talk about social and cultural history, and that's all well and good. 
But for the future of the discipline, I think that we need to, in many cases, go where the public is. And if that means, you know, thinking about the presidency, its role, who people who occupied it, thinking about reputation and the like, we should go there. There's nothing wrong with selling books. Wow. Well, you heard it here first. There's nothing wrong with selling books. I, I, I yeah, yeah. Don't we uh, all like to be written, uh, uh, read? <laughs> we would like to be read. Um, it, it's. I was thinking when you were, were saying that, I, 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 I could easily offer a class on the American presidency, and yet um, until you had just mentioned that, I, I never would have dreamed of doing it. And, and even now, um, some perverse, um, overly academic part of me feels kind of dirty thinking about it. I, yeah, I mean, I try to resist that. I mean, there's, I think that among many academic historians, they look at doing presidential history as a sellout. Yeah. That there's something unserious about that type of thing. I just don't find that attitude to be particularly helpful. Mm-hmm. I think it's ultimately self-defeating, actually, mm-hmm. to think about uh, to think about it in uh, to think about it in that way. You want enrollment in your classes? Teach a class on the presidency and see what happens. <laughs> have you done that? I mean, is that I have. Yeah. And you sell, and, and you sell out, max out that class yeah. Yeah. because people are interested, okay. and there's nothing wrong with that. No, okay. the fact that people are interested in history should be celebrated, not questioned. Yeah, and then of course, then you get to explain um, political culture and what that means and how, you use it. Pre- how you, presidents the, are part if, of it. If people are interested in that type of thing, you use that as a jumping-off point to make to make certain points that you want to make. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can use the presidency to get at other things if you wish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but. You need to go where the public is, I think. Mm-hmm. So, pre- presidents overlook presidents. Let's. I'm going to uh, play. Uh, we we don't, we're almost out of time here, but I want to play uh, a, a game that I could only play probably with you, Michael Connolly. Um, I'm going to give you some names of obscure 19th century presidents, and you're going to tell, and tell us why they're actually important, even though they might be on the list of worst presidents in history. Okay. I love 19, obscure 19th century uh, politicians. I, I, I think I should start a website. I think you probably should. Um, obscure 19th century politicians. Not many people uh, can explain who Gareth Hobart was. And it's, I, you I, know, that's true. And Charles I, Warren Fairbanks. And Charles Warren Fairbanks. And <laughs> I, I don't think the world is yet ready to learn about these things. Uh, yeah, anyway. Uh, Franklin Pierce. <laughs> Franklin Pierce. I mean, fr- poor Franklin. <laughs> he he does get something of a of a bum rap. The the perfectly honest man, very honest man, and there were achievements in his in his uh, in his time of office. Name you have three. A radical reduction of the federal okay. debt uh, in his time of office. I and mean, if you look at reduction of the debt in the nineteenth century, Jefferson, Jackson, and Pierce were the most successful in actually uh, in actually reducing it. The, the, the problem with Pierce is, of course, the passage of the Kansas Nebraska Act. When he was eventually bullied into signing it by Stephen A. Douglas, and that completely shifts mm-hmm. the direction of sectional politics for the rest of of the decade. But he was a he was a very honest man, extremely well liked inside Washington, um, and suffered from tragic flaws. He was a terrible alcoholic, and that's eventually ended up with killing him. Hmm. James Buchanan. James Buchanan. Well, in the I, I should say, probably, I've been probably, in the midst of writing a book on Buchanan. Oh my God, I can't. Are you really, really? I am eight uh, eight chapters in of I mean, ten. So how many presidents have there been? He has to rank at the bottom of every, he is at the very list. bottom. Okay, go and on. And therein lies his 
Charm. is attraction. Yeah. And we're interested in the shiny object in the room. The shiny object is greatness and total failure. Yeah. Um, my argument for Buchanan, I think he, I mean, he's often used as a foil to Lincoln. I mean, he almost yeah. has to be the sort of anti-Lincoln. I don't think he should be called or understood that way. Yeah. Um, I actually think he's far more competent than people give him credit for. Yeah. I don't think he was a failure. I think that there, I think that there's some things that need to be understood about his role in Kansas and his role in the secession crisis. We can look at it in a different way. I think he's far more competent than people give him give him credit for. He certainly had, as I recall, um, one of the most impeccable pre-presidential uh, pedigrees. Uh, An amazing resume. Yeah. What, what? Secretary of State, Minister of Russia, Minister of the Court of St. James. Chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. I mean, huge experience as a diplomat. And a scholar, of, of, of an amateur scholar of some note, I, be, I believe, as well. Say that again? An amateur scholar of, of some note, I believe. Um, not, no John Quincy Adams, but still pretty, pretty sound. He was a very bright man, very good politician. Um, his, he had two major flaws. One was secretiveness, and the other one was... Um, reluctant to part with people he regarded as his friends. Mm -hmm. it's similar, it's similar to Harding in that mm -hmm. sense. So that when you get to the secession crisis, you have people who were actively undermining him, and he had real difficulty in pushing them away. How are you going to, um, I mean, there's two things that I've just uh, recently uh, been reading about, um, outside my period, I know, but um, his relationship with Douglas is fratricidal. Um, it's, but that's part of his skill as a politician, I think, is that he's able to, I mean, I, he destroys the party, uh, arguably, uh, the Democratic Party for, not, for about 50 years, um, but he fights a really vicious war with, uh, with Douglas. Um, yeah, you know, he, he had a terrible falling out with Douglas over Kansas, but the split between he and Douglas went back many more years than that. I remember they were they were tremendous Democratic Party rivals for the presidency mm -hmm. over the decade previous. And um, Buchanan, frankly, didn't trust Douglas. He thought Douglas was running around with people who, were he ever to get the presidency, would would use it for their own ends. Yeah, he's probably right about that. Um, particularly when it comes to 1860. Mm -hmm. And Douglas... He had his loyal supporters and was trying to get the, the nomination at Charleston and Baltimore. Mm -hmm. Buchanan was absolutely convinced, I think there's something to this, that he was being royally backed by Vanderbilt Railroad interests mm -hmm. who were hoping a Douglas presidency would mean enormous land grants and lots of money and yeah. land grants for a, a transcontinental railroad fished over to them. Yeah, what happened in Illinois can happen nationwide. Yeah, I mean, he had his reputation as a railroad man, yeah. Douglas did. Obviously, the father of the Illinois Central Railroad, big mm -hmm. uh, real estate owner in Chicago. So he didn't trust um, Douglas even earlier than that. And then the fallout over Kansas, um, I won't get into the details of that uh, now, but it was a very, very bitter, bitter divorce that split up the party, perfectly right to note, for a couple of decades after that. And then there's the Dred Scott decision, in which Buchanan seems to be more implicated than we've given him uh, credit yeah. for. Yeah, he, he actively intervened in that, because we weren't aware of that until many years later, I think it was the 1920s, when scholars digging through um, some paper collections saw some influence of of, Douglas, of, uh, of Buchanan rather on the decision. 
again, that's a longer story, but mm-hmm. he's no question. He lobbied the Supreme Court in the months previous to his inauguration to to a particular decision. We shouldn't be surprised at that because mm-hmm. he had, if you really listen to Buchanan for the decade previous, he had been predicting and essentially, um, well, he had been essentially predicting that the court would have to come in as a result of the Kansas-Nebraska Act and decide what the status of territory uh, of property was in the territories. He'd been predicting it, predicting it for years, and then when he had the opportunity to do it with Dred Scott, he did it, and people feigned surprise. Well, they shouldn't have been surprised. He'd been saying it for the last ten years. Grover Cleveland. Grover Cleveland, um, he's a legendary in his time. He's the major Democrat between the Civil War and, and World War One. Um, he's very, very well liked inside the Democratic Party. Of course, his reputation took a terrible hit when the economy collapsed mm-hmm. in 1893. But you look, I mean... Cleveland should probably get more credit as well. He was another very, very honest man, um, very thrifty. <laughs> no question about that. He ran the, tried to run the government on a shoestring. Um, and it all fell apart, of course, with the populists, a populist uprising, William Jennings Bryan, and all the, the disputes of a currency in the 1890s. But he was a very, very popular uh, man personally with Democrats uh, right up through uh, his death in, what was it, 1907, 08, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and finally, William McKinley. Both of these guys are two terms. They can't be called failures certain in a political sense, but they certainly are obscure now. Yeah. Well, William McKinley, um, his reputation has come up uh, a lot in recent years. Mm-hmm. I, I, I was it Kevin Phillips, who, uh, this was probably 10 years ago, was making comparisons between George W. Bush and William McKinley? Sort of dusting off William McKinley a hundred years later, essentially. Yeah, you got me there. Uh, I think it was I think it was him that was doing that. Well, McKinley was beloved in his time. Uh, I think he was assassinated, which is, helps his helped his his reputation, helped people's memory of him uh, very very fondly. But he he was fortunate, and when he became president, you know, he won in eighteen ninety six. The economy by that time had gone through four years of hell. And was beginning to recover, so that when it did recover, one who began to get all the credit for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, you have the successful fighting of the Spanish-American War. You don't have American Empire without William McKinley. Mm-hmm. Hmm. My guest today has been Michael J. Conley. Michael, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks. For more historical thinking, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can comment on today's program and find show notes, links, and readings related to today's conversation. Historically Thinking is recorded in the studio of WAUG, the student radio station of Augustana College. Our program's editor is John Ruddat. Beth Leimbach keeps the schedules in sync. Matt Lehas keeps WAUG studio running. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.